Okay, if you have Bibles with you, uh, please open up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. This morning I'm continuing my series on healing. We're taking a look at, um, we've been taking a look at Jesus' healing miracles and his power encounters throughout the Gospel of Mark to see what we can learn uh, from them and as we go forth and learn uh, how to pray for people. I figure we have no better example than Jesus. What did Jesus do, right? Let's, let's examine what he did and as much as possible do, do the same. Last week in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, we looked at, at two healing encounters. The healing of the woman with the issue of blood, where Jesus just touched the hem of her garment and her suffering uh, 12 years an issue of blood was healed instantly when all she did was touch the hem of his garment. And then the encounter that Jesus had with Jairus and his daughter. And um, while, Jesus, while Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house, he, there's an interruption and this woman touches the hem of his garment and is healed. And, and then people come and tell Jairus her daughter is dead. Oh my goodness, horrific. I can't imagine. And this is what Jesus says to Jairus. He says, don't listen to them. Just trust me. Don't listen to them. Just trust me. I want to be in a place in my journey, in my walk of faith, that when my circumstances are crushing, because that's what this has to be for Jairus, right? That if Jesus says to me, don't listen to the circumstances, no matter how accurate they are, Ignore the empirical evidence. Instead, just trust me that there would be some place in my heart that would be able to respond to him, yes, Lord, I don't understand. My heart is broken. But because you said so, I'll choose to trust you right now. That's what it says in the message. That's what Jesus said to Jairus when they told him, your little girl is dead. Jesus said to Jairus, don't listen to them, just trust me. And what happened after that? He raised her from the dead. He raised her from the dead. What an amazing God we serve. Today I want to look at one power encounter. It's from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. It's, um, it's a Greek woman's uh, daughter. But before we get into that, there's something of the teacher in me that likes to keep context. We're going to go from the end of Mark chapter 5 to about the middle of Mark chapter 7. And, and as we make that leap over to this next power encounter, let me just fill in the gaps a little bit for you. I'm not going to teach on it, just going to mention a few things. Some of the highlights from the beginning of chapter 6 to about the middle of chapter 7. What happened from Mark 5.43 until Mark 7.24? Well, Mark 5 ends with the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Let's pick it up from there. In Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, Jesus goes home to Nazareth and he begins teaching. The first six verses of chapter 6 tells us that. This is what Jesus is all about. I've been telling you this for weeks now when it comes to healing. It's all about the demonstration of the kingdom. We see that with the healing miracles and with the power encounters where he expels demons. But it's also about the proclamation of the gospel. What Jesus teaches is the demonstration and the proclamation. He does the stuff and then he teaches and so that's what Jesus does in these first six verses. He's teaching again. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's the proclamation of the kingdom. He preaches the kingdom of God, and then he does the stuff. Or he does the stuff, and then he preaches uh, the kingdom. And it tells us in this in these texts here that some of them are amazed at his wisdom. 
while others are offended. Right? Seems how it was from the very beginning. If it says in verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? He's, he's in his hometown now. Right? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. It's like, we know Jesus. We grew, he's 30 years old. They've spent their whole lives here. He's, he's the carpenter. We know his brothers. We know his mother. We know his sister. In other words, like, who does he think he is? Right? Some people are actually offended at Jesus. In spite of all that he's done, the amazing teaching, the amazing miracles, people are still offended. It still surprises me when people get offended at God, when they get offended at his goodness and his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his love. It still astonishes me. After 30 years, I've been preaching a message of freedom, of love, of mercy and grace for 30 years, and people are offended everywhere I've gone. Everywhere. People have been offended at the good news. And it still astonishes me. I read this and I think to myself, Tom, you shouldn't be so surprised. <laughs> they were offended from the very beginning. Anyway, Mark chapter 6, verses 17 to 13. Jesus sends out the 12. He sends them out two by two. And, and Jesus has been utilizing a, a training model with them. He's been, it's basically been show and tell. It's about as simple as you can get. First he did the stuff, and then, well, the disciples watched, and then he sends them out to do it. And now they're going to come back and, and, and report to him. Like John Wimber used to say, everyone gets to play. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6 say this. They went out and preached that the people would repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Sounds just like the stuff Jesus did. Proclamation and demonstration. I think there's a pattern here. I think there's something we can learn you know, from this. In verses 14 to 29 of chapter 6 is the whole detailed account of, of why John the Baptist was beheaded and I'm not going to really go into that. You can look at that for yourself if you want to. Verses 30 to 44 in, um, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus multiplies food and he feeds thousands. When, this, when the disciples, see what happened is when the disciples return from having been sent out two by two and they come back, they're excited, right? They've, they've healed people and they've cast out demons and they've pre preached the message of the gospel. They want to tell Jesus about it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to come back and say, hey, it worked. <laughs> we did the stuff that you did. And so when they got back together, what they wanted to do was to kind of go off privately, just them, just their little group, where they can have this conversation. But, you know, at this point, Jesus has done so much stuff. Crowds are following him everywhere he goes. And, and that's what happens here. A large crowd follows, and Jesus has compassion on the crowd, and he, and he did what he, he does. He taught them. He, there was more proclamation. And it went on for a while. I think Jesus was one of those preachers that kind of could go on and on and on and on and on. I'm not sure that their services had a start time and an end time. Because it went on so long that some of the disciples were worried, hey, um, how are these people going to eat? <laughs> I guess I'll tell you a story once. I, I candidated for a church before we came here. And uh, I think it was in Wisconsin or something. And, and so we're doing a video chat. And you, you've probably heard this story at least five or six times. We're doing a video chat, and there's their whole search committee here sitting around, and one of the ladies tells me, she says, she says I listen to some of your sermons online, so they're pretty good. She says, but you preach too long. She said, my roast is going to burn. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in her world, she put the roast in the oven before she went to church. She knew how long the service would be. she come back, the roast was done, and this wasn't going to, she says, we have to do something about it. If we hire you, 
have to do something about that. I don't think Jesus really cared about the roast burnings. I love when my nerdy jokes get a, a pity laugh from the, the pastor gets, gets a pity laugh from the congregation. Nadine reminds me often, she's like, so wacky, you're not funny. You're just, you don't bring the funny. Anyway, it's getting late. The disciples are concerned about the people. Verse 37, Jesus, Jesus says this to them, right? There's thousands of people there listening. It's getting late. They've gone off to a desolate place. They were trying to get away from the people, right? There's no needs grocery store around the corner, right? There's no super, There's nowhere they can go to get food. And they're coming to Jesus with this concern. You know, we need to break up this meeting so these people can go. They get some food. This is what Jesus says to them in verse 37. You give them something to eat. Could you imagine trying to follow Jesus? Has God ever spoke to you and, and you feel like saying, what? I'm absolutely lost. It makes absolutely no sense to me. I don't get it. What plane are you operating on? This doesn't compute in my brain, right? I'm thinking the disciples were in that place all the time. It comforts me to read verse 37. When Jesus would say to them, you give them something to eat. I have nothing to give them, right? Maybe I've got lunch enough for me. I, this doubt, Jesus, this doubt. And, the, you know, if you look at some of the Gospels, there's a conversation. It's like, it would take a year's wages, you know, for everyone just to get a bite, they're not, they're not getting it at all. Right? The poor disciples must have been so confused. They had no idea what Jesus could do with five loaves and two fish. They had no idea what he could do with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. You know what? You have no idea what he can do with you. You have no idea what he could do with your life. Little is a much in his hands. Verses 42 to 44 tell us they all ate and were satisfied. They all, there were thousands. The text tells us there were 5,000 men, right? They weren't counting the women and children. There could have been 15, 20,000 people there. He took a few loaves, a couple of fish, and the scriptures tells us they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. His ways are not our ways. We have a big God. He seems to delight in working in impossible circumstances to bring about his purposes and his ways. We have a big, big God. In Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 50, says Jesus walks on water. What an amazing journey these disciples have been on. They've watched Jesus calm storms, <laughs> Walking on water, multiplying food, casting out demons, healing the sick, even raising the dead. What an amazing journey they've been on. It's not like God's keeping his power under wraps, right? I mean, it's right, it's right out there. How is it that the whole world isn't already just bowing down at his feet? Mark 6 ends with these words, verses 53 to 56. It says, when they had crossed over, they had gotten into the boat, right, to get away from the people. Uh, when they had crossed over and landed at Gennesaret and anchored there, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed sounds like this edge of the garment thing was kind of catching on eh? 
Did I just say A? Have I been in Canada for four years now? Nay, I said A. I said, I heard, I said, it's on tape. I said A. <laughs> Even with all these signs and wonders and amazing teaching, and teaching as one with authority, the Pharisees still have issues with him. Chapter 7 opens up with yet one more confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. With all these amazing signs and wonders Jesus performed, the Pharisees are concerned. This is, this is the big concern they have, right? The, the guy who walked on water, multiplied food, raised the dead, calmed storms. They're concerned about this. This is the big issue in the beginning of chapter 7. That Jesus' disciples didn't, hadn't washed their hands properly before they ate. This is what the Pharisees are concerned. Talking about straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so they question Jesus about it in verse 5. Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? <laughs> you know what? The old wineskin simply cannot abide the new wine. It just can't. Right? They are so blind to all the amazing things that Jesus is doing. They're concerned about whether or not these guys wash their hands according to, to, to tradition. Jesus addresses the heart of the issue in verse 15. He says, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he's speaking to them. You're concerned about our dirty hands, and I'm concerned about your hearts. It's what's inside of you. It reminds me of what God said to the prophet Samuel on the day that David was anointed king. 1 Samuel 16, 7 second half of verse 7, it says, The Lord does not look on things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to be a man who's not blinded by the outward appearance of circumstances or of people or even movements of God. I want to see the heart. I want to see God's heart. I want to see the heart of God inside of people. I want to be able to, as a pastor, as someone who's prophetic, it's just a man I want to be able to look at people and not see them where they are right now. I want to see them at the end of their journey. I want to, see, I want to be able to see in them the purposes and the destiny of God and treat them as though they're already there. That is so my heart. That's so my heart. Isn't that what Jesus must have done with the disciples when he called them? Come on, Peter. Peter did some screwy things. How about, how about James and John? You know why they were called the sons of thunder? They wanted to call down fire from heaven. They asked Jesus if they could. <laughs> and he still kept them. <laughs> he didn't throw them out of his church. Yeah, I know, I know you want to call down fire from heaven. Probably not what we're going to do today, guys. <laughs> Nadine says, yeah, but it's my birthday. <laughs> Even on your birthday, honey, you cannot call down fire from heaven. So in Mark's gospel, so far, Jesus has healed people in a variety of ways. He's cast out a demon and rebuked a fever and with a word of command healed a leper, all in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he forgave someone's sins and healed them that way. In chapter 3, he healed a man's shriveled hand. He did it on the Sabbath. Ooh, made some enemies over that one. 
In chapter 5, um, he delivers a demonized man by sending a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. Also in chapter 5, we looked at last week, the woman with the issue of blood, Jake just touched the hem of his garment. And for an issue, that a sickness, a disease that she had battled for 12 years, instantly healed. And then he healed Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. He raised her from the dead. And all he did is he took her by the hand and he said to her little girl, I say to you, get up. And you know what? That little girl got up. She got up. All that, as well as the other things I mentioned, his command over nature, calming storms, walking over water, multiplying food. So let's look at, a, at another healing today, another power encounter today. I caught you up. Now we're at Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 30. Let me read those verses to you. So much passion for this. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyree. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, the little children eat all they want, he told her. But it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs, to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs eat the table. Excuse me. Lord, even, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying in the bed, and the demon gone. Whew. Powerful text. Two questions come to mind as I read this. First question is, what's up with that interaction? <laughs> right? There are, some, there are some parts of that interaction that bother me. Uh, I want to look at that. And the other is, just how would we categorize this healing or this deliverance? Let's take a look at the second question first. Jesus doesn't even go to the girl like he did Jairus' daughter. He doesn't personally interact with the girl like he did with the man who had the legion of demons. As far as I can tell from the text, Jesus doesn't even pray. He simply announces what's happened. The demon has left your daughter. This is a healing by announcement. I, I, I'm trying to come up with another category. But this is healing by announcement. This is deliverance by announcement. The same God who said, let there be light, announced the demon has left your daughter, and the demon left. The miracle-working power of God is displayed conversationally. His ways are not our ways. His ways are not our ways. He's so, he's so much more powerful than we understand or realize. In the course of normal conversation, well, maybe not entirely normal, but conversation nonetheless, with another person, something supernatural happens. I got to tell you what, I want that. It's not that I want to be known as a man who has supernatural power, but I want the same power that's in God to be active and alive in me and to do through me and in my life the things he's done here. Why should I settle for anything less? He said we would do greater things. I think this would be a great thing to do. 
I want to have a conversation with somebody and say, the demon's left your daughter, and they go home and find out the demon's actually left his daughter. That ought to be within the realm of possibility for us. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. It bugs me I don't see it. I want to see it. Maybe that's what it'll be like for us when we realize just who lives inside of us. And he qualifies the announcement. His announcement is the demon has left your daughter, but he qualifies it with this. For such a reply, you may go. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Her reply had an impact. Well, why? Well, let's look at my first question. What's up with this interaction? Let's take a closer look at it. Now, <clears throat> if you look more deeply into the text, I did, and I'll tell you what I found out. You guys will find this too. Jesus had traveled about 50 miles north from Gennesaret on the Sea of Galilee to the vicinity of Tyree. That's about the distance from here to, say, Wellington. About 50 miles. It's no small distance. Whole different neighborhood, right? Whole different region. Jesus has left the Hebrew ter ter territory. He's left Hebrew territory, and he's entered into Gentile territory. And for anyone paying attention, it's been clear all along <laughs> It really has, that Jesus has come not just for the Jew, but for all of humanity. Verse 24 tells us, in Mark chapter 7, that Jesus had entered a house. Well, he's in Gentile territory. Obviously, this is a Gentile's house that he's entered. Now, there was a Jewish tradition of the time that said a faithful Jew would have nothing to do with Gentiles. And they would never enter a house a Gentile's house. They just never would do it. Remember when we looked at John's Gospel and Jesus had the conversation with the Samaritan woman? Nobody did that. Right? He's operating way outside the box. He's coloring way outside the lines. He enters a Gentile's house. He's eating there. He's having a conversation, not just with a woman, which was still taboo, but with a Gentile woman. Jesus doesn't play by the rules of the day. He doesn't. He heals on the Sabbath. He eats without ceremoniously washing his hands. Now he's in a Gentile's house and eating food and talking to a Gentile woman. So here's Jesus in a Gentile house trying unsuccessfully to hide from the crowd that seems to follow him everywhere he goes. And this Gentile woman approaches him. And in verse 25, the text tells us that as soon as she heard about him, the woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came, fell at his feet, and begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. The woman was a Greek, meaning a Gentile, a non-Jew. Matthew's account tells us that she was a Canaanite, meaning that she was a Palestinian. And she's making an impassioned plea for her demonized daughter, falling at Jesus' feet and begging. She's making a scene, right? If you were in somebody's house eating food and somebody dropped to their to their knees, and they're begging you for help, everybody else in the room is going to be aware of what's going on, right? This is not polite society. This is a desperate woman who's taking desperate action because she loves her daughter so. Matthew's gospel adds a, a few extra details. She refers uh, to Jesus in this way, a Canaanite woman, this is what the text says, Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity, right, so now we know she's a Gentile, came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, 
Have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She's a, she calls him son of David. She calls him Lord. And she calls him son of David. There's no mistake here that this is a Gentile woman and she's speaking to a Hebrew man. It's very clear. It's clear to both of them if you look into the text. The cultural distinctions are clearly understood between them. A Canaanite woman is asking a Hebrew healer for divine help with a significant spiritual problem at her with her Palestinian daughter. This is a violation of all kinds of social norms. It's just not done in that day, unless you're desperate enough to color outside and venture outside your God box and break all the rules. Desperation will do that for you. And the woman was relentless. You ever, anybody here know someone who's relentless? You know anybody who's relentless? They will not stop until they get what they want. They are dogged. They are relentless. This woman is the picture of relentlessness. Jesus doesn't respond to her when she speaks to him. And yet she continues, making her plea. So Jesus doesn't respond to so her. What does she do? She turns to the disciples. Wouldn't you do that too? Matthew 15, 23 tells us, So the disciples came to Jesus and urged him, Send her away. But she keeps crying out after us. Right? This woman would not be denied. Jesus isn't responding. She probably went to every one of the disciples until she, she didn't get what she wanted. Undeterred. Even after the disciples asked Jesus to send her away, undeterred, she makes her case directly to Jesus. And in verse 27, Jesus says to her, First let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now the children here clearly are referring to the house of Israel, to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people. And dogs are a reference to the Gentiles. Does this bother you? But I tell you what, reading this, it bothered me. I'm thinking, I'm really hoping there's more to this because if Jesus is calling her a dog, it kind of bothered me. So let me tell you a little about the word dog here. It was common in Hebrew culture to call Gentiles dogs. It was common. It was just what they did. Kind of like the way New Yorkers feel about people from New Jersey. Ugh, it's just terrible. <laughs> Maybe even worse than that. Right? The way Mets fans feel about Yankee fans. It's just... And when they referred to them as dogs, it wasn't a compliment. It wasn't in the context, oh, man's best friend. Let me be delicate here. When they referred to them as dogs, the term commonly used, the word commonly used, was more akin to a certain B word in our culture, that I will not use from the pulpit. So when they said dogs, they meant that other word. Not a compliment, right? Not at all. Bad word. This is what I want you to know. That's not the word Jesus used when he spoke to her. He did not call her the B word. And so did my heart good to find that out. Jesus used a much softer word, a much kinder word. The word he used would refer to a cute small dog or a puppy. So when he said the dog, he wasn't calling her the B word. He was really using a term of endearment, like a puppy. It was a play on words. 
There was a cultural understanding there. They knew that they were from two separate cultures. And yet Jesus is speaking to her in a language that she'll understand. And he's not being harsh like the other Jews would. There's actually a kindness being communicated from Jesus to this woman. And she gets it. When he says the cute little word, small dog or puppy, she gets it. Because this is what happens. She replies to Jesus with kindness and humility. Look, I'm 56 years old. I've been married for 35 years. I have a 32-year-old daughter. I've known a lot of women in my life. Anytime ever in my whole life I was stupid enough to use the B word, none of those women have ever responded to me with kindness and humility. All right? Usually the claws come out and I'm about to lose my head. My head's going to be lopped off, right? All the ladies are doing this. Men, how many of you guys have made the same stupid mistake? If you're like me, maybe you make that mistake once in your life and you never, ever go there again, right? The text tells us she replies to Jesus with kindness and humility. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And when she responds to Jesus, she's not using the B word either. She's using the same term that he used with her. Small dog. Cute little puppy. Even the puppies eat the children's bread. She got what he was saying. Oh, he's not calling me the B word. He's not referring to me as the dog that all the other Jews think of us Gentiles. He's not insulting to me. This was actually a gentleness that he was extending you might even want to say it was coy. And she obviously gets it. Because when she replies to him, she uses the same word in response to him that he used with her. She got Jesus' message. She got it, and she replied in kind with passion and humility. This is a desperate woman who's willing to do anything for her daughter's freedom. And Jesus, knowing that she got the message from the way she responded to him. Because she used the same word in her response to him. This is what Jesus says to her in verse 29. Then he tells her, for such a reply. For such a reply. Because you replied this way. Because you got it. Because you got what I was really saying to you. For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. They un replied. That means they understood each other. There was an understanding. Matthew 15, 18 puts it this way. The woman, he says, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And your daughter has, and her daughter was healed at that mo moment. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Matthew 15, 28. The word there for faith is pistis. And I've taught on this a dozen times. It means trust. Because of your great trust. Trust was communicated and exchanged cross-culturally with but a word. Such great trust that a mere announcement was all that was needed. And the daughter was set free from this demon. Oh, the power relationship. The amazing power of trust. Where there's relationship, <laughs> where there's trust, anything could happen. Anything can happen. Guys, we have to guard relationship. 
We have to honor and value trust. We have to protect it. I'm convinced that what the enemy would want to do is destroy relationships and destroy trust between us and God and between us and one another. Why? Because when it's, when it's right, when it's in place, it's astonishingly effective. Look at what happened here. They just met. And because there was understanding, there was trust communicated in a word. That little girl set free. She had been possessed by a demon and set free because of the power of trust in even a new relationship. Matthew 7.30 tells us she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. gone. Don't you just love Jesus? Paul was right when he said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female for all. A one in Christ Jesus, if you belong to Christ, and then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the truth. There are no more Jews and no more Gentiles. It's simply our loving God displayed in the glory and majesty of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and his extravagant love for humanity. I can't help but think of the classic old children's song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So let me close with this well-known verse. Why don't you worship team members come on up? <clears throat> this well-known verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, we've heard those verses so many times in our lives, I'm not sure we hear what they're saying. For God so loved the world. He doesn't hate the world, he doesn't despise the world, he's not against the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, why? So that whoever believes, male, female, rich, poor, no matter your color, no matter your background, Jew or Gentile, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the less common, but equally as powerful, verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Oh God. God, I pray this morning that you would write on our hearts the truth and the reality of who you are. Open our eyes to see you to see your great mercy and your great love, to see your kindness and your tenderness and your great grace. Do it, Lord. Lord, would you, um, would you erase, would you scratch out, would you remove the lies of the enemy over us, what the enemy has said about you to us, how you're angry and mad and vengeful? Would you remove that from our spirits? And Lord, would you speak to us the truth about who you say that we are and just how loved we are. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus.